Welcome to Travel Through Time and to an episode supported by Sega. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today we're leaving our usual world of books and literature to one side for a moment as we explore how another industry is drawing on history in the present day. This is the world of gaming, of deeply immersive and, as I found out, expertly researched and assembled games that are introducing huge numbers of people to specific moments in the past. One of the most popular and acclaimed of these games over the past two decades is called Company of Heroes. This franchise began back in 2006 with a game set in 1944 and built around the events of Operation Overlord. A sequel dealing with the Red Army and the Eastern Front followed in 2013 and now, a decade on, a third game has been released. Company of Heroes 3 centres on the Mediterranean theatre of World War II, from Tobruk through to Monte Cassino. For me, as a working historian, this was a fabulous opportunity to find out how gamers are taking history and turning it into something really gripping and really quite new. What's more, as I'll explain later on, Company of Heroes 3 has been released along with a fascinating content hub or briefing room, which features analysis from world-renowned historians. First off though, the other day I sat down for a travel back through time with David Milne, a really impressive young mission builder who worked on the development of the game. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you will do too. To see some wonderful visuals and videos and to learn more, do head to our website at tttpodcast.com. Welcome to Travels Through Time, David Milne. I'm in London. You're joining us from Vancouver, but we're, amongst other things, going to be talking about North Africa and India Day, so it's quite a cosmopolitan feel to this recording. But before we get to any of that, I just wanted to say that you pretty much have my 15-year-old self's dream job, and I thought it'd be good <laughs> if you began by explaining to our listeners just what it is that you do. Well, you know, I've kind of got my 15-year-old self-stream job, too, <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, so, yeah, I am a senior game designer at Relic Entertainment. So, more specifically, what I do is I am a mission designer. So, I'm working on our single-player mission experiences. There's, you know, there's gameplay designers and, and systems designers and live ops. You know, we've got all kinds of designers, and I'm specifically working on those, those single-player missions. So some places would call that like a level designer as well, if, if that's a term that people are more familiar with. But yeah. That's you. Should I think of you as something like a digital novelist? You go into work in the morning, try and think up um, a plot line that would take a gamer through um, an exciting, dramatic experience. I mean, that's certainly, uh, yeah, that's certainly a part of it. There, there is a lot of time where I'm designing, but it certainly looks like I'm just kind of staring out the window, um, <laughs> thinking of what needs to what needs to be in the game and, and how to approach something. Certainly, we're focused on. Uh, the experience that the player is having, you know, what are they doing in their moment to moment playthrough? What is the actions they're performing? What are the challenges that they're up against? How do we teach players, you know, how to how to solve these problems and then challenge their knowledge with 
you know, a, a more difficult version of that so they can apply that knowledge and, and kind of guiding them through that. So yeah. And so in, in some ways for sure, that's, that's, that's a large part of what we do. And one other thing I just want to touch on from your biography is, um, and I think this is because we're a history podcast, it's obviously very relevant, is the fact that you have studied history at uh, the University of Lethbridge in um, Alberta. Is that right? Yeah. And do you want to tell me just a tiny bit about that and um, what the what the way was that took you from a history undergraduate degree into this very interesting job? Yeah, I mean, history has been something that I've always been interested in. When I was a little kid, my my dad and I would watch old old war movies, right? You know, The Longest Day and A Bridge Too Far and Torah, Torah, Torah and, and all those movies. That was our kind of Remembrance Day tradition. We'd sit and we'd watch all those movies on the History Channel and, and even ones, uh, you know, like Battle of the Bulge as accurate or inaccurate as that movie might be. And um, so, it, it, you know, like that, that's always been something. And, and my dad actually has a history degree as well. He, he's a lawyer, but that's what his undergraduate was. And so like that, that respect for, I guess, or appreciation of history has always been something that's been the family and games like Company of Heroes specifically, you know, when I was younger and Age of Empires and Assassin's Creed just continued to pique that interest and get me wanting to like look into it more. And so when I got to university, I like many 18 year olds didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I liked history and I knew that that was something that I would enjoy. And if, if nothing else, at least I would enjoy learning. I don't know. I didn't see myself going and, and getting a PhD and actually becoming, you know, a historian, you know, or, or, or writing a book. It was something that was always of interest to me, but I really wanted to be doing something that uh, let me flex my creative muscles a little bit more. And so while I was at university, we had, um, we had what were called a uh, GLER or general liberal education requirements. So you had to take a few classes that were outside of your major, which at the time I thought was very silly. Um, and looking back, I actually think it's kind of a, a great idea because what I did was is I took a bunch of what were called back then new media classes. So this is animation and visual effects and 3D modeling and, and all that sort of stuff. And so I was taking history, but I was also taking, you know, these computer art classes effectively and that got me in contact at that university with a group of people who were trying to make a video game i kind of joined up with them and and it wasn't a part of a class or anything they were just you know students trying to make a game and i had absolutely no idea what i was doing i was not really participating at all i was i just thought oh i want to join in and this sounds cool and then i realized that i didn't really understand any of it and so i looked for I realized that I kind of needed an education in this in, in some capacity. So I started looking around and I found the Vancouver Film School, which has a game design program. And so that's how I ended up here in Vancouver is I went to that school, took their program and then ended up getting a job uh, here in Vancouver. And, and a few years ago, because I was a fan of Company of Heroes and I knew Relic Entertainment was one of the companies in Vancouver, I always kind of kept my eye out on on possible job openings for uh, for Relic. And, uh, yeah, a few years ago there was an opening and, and I put my resume forward and did some design tests and, and got a job here. So, you know, work, working here and, and working on Company of Heroes in, in a lot of ways feels like a, a sort of coming full circle experience of, you know, being a young boy and having this interest in history and Company of Heroes specifically and, and going through that journey. And now here I am. <laughs> 
And I'm working on a Company of Heroes game. <laughs> okay, well, keep your eyes out for any more jobs. You can tell me about them. Company of Heroes, let's talk about the the thing yeah. which brings us, the great the great game which brings us here today. It's actually Company of Heroes 3. Mm-hmm. I know that this is a tremendously popular franchise which has sold in the millions over the past decade and a half or so, but... I thought it'd be really useful if you gave our listeners an overview of what Company of Heroes is for those who maybe don't know yet. And um, also tell us if there is some realisation on your part of why it has been quite so popular. So Company of Heroes is what we call a real-time strategy game. So if you're, you know, if you're thinking about your view or your perspective on it, it's a, a camera that's kind of above, hovering above the world, looking down on it. And you uh, build up a, a base and you build up, a, you know, an army of squads of riflemen and tanks and, and weapons teams and that kind of stuff. And you are controlling them it's a it's a tactics game as much as anything you're moving your units around you're putting them in cover you're trying to capture specific locations or destroy certain things depending on what the objective is Um, you can play through our single player campaigns which for this game we have uh, a campaign where you play as the africa corps in north africa and another campaign where you play as the british and the americans um move starting in Salerno and moving their way up to Rome in Italy. And then of course you can play multiplayer as well and and that's where a huge chunk of our fans latch onto as well as is playing against each other in kind of competitive player versus player uh axis versus allies fights again you know really stretching those tactical and strategic muscles that they might have to see who's the better commander. So yeah and and you're yeah you said it this is a company of heroes 3. It's been around since the early 2000s and i think that one of the things that draws draws players in and really captures players one is that gameplay that i described it's you're controlling kind of let's say large platoon to small company size of units the the gameplay loop of that kind of boots on the ground you're moving your units around you're thinking about how to flank an enemy uh machine gun team dropping smoke smashing tanks through walls to open up new new flanking routes and that sort of a thing like the action and the gameplay of the of the game itself i think is what really draws it in but there's sort of another element to it which is we have this real focus on character and making sure that our world feels very alive you know when you when you zoom in on these characters you know they're fully animated and we actually write up for each of our unit types will write up a a biography for them and when we cast their voice actors we're making we're casting a character and so as you click on them and send them places they you know they're talking they're you know bantering with each other they're shouting at the enemy they're doing reacting to explosions and gunfire around them and so it feels very alive you feel attached to these characters you know they're not just little green plastic army men they are it's your units you know they're your squads and and you feel that attachment and you feel pulled in by that um and i think that that's what really really draws players in it's really fascinating he hearing you describe that and i think again of what i said earlier about the novelistic aspect of this because it is very very immersive you're thinking about 
you know, the individual here, and it, and it's down to that level. But there's a word I wanted to dwell on, if you don't mind, um, from the title, which I think uh, is an instructive one as well. The word company, because I suppose to a lot of people that suggests the kinship of, you know, the band of brothers kind of thing and people thrown together in combat, but actually takes us to something else as well that I've heard you talk about um, elsewhere, which is the community of gamers who've come together around um, Company of Heroes. And, you know, we're, we're talking about this is number three in 15 years or so. It's taken a long time to develop this particular game. And you talk about the community being involved in the developmental aspect of that. Is that true? Yeah. So from a very early stage, we've had some amount of community involvement. So that has included a group of people who were either content creators or professional players and and trying to get early designs and early builds of the game in their hands and wanting to get that feedback very early on. You know, this is this is a game that has been around for a long time and we want to make sure that we're making a game that the players wanted. You know, th this is this is, you know, for them. <laughs> so we want to make sure that that it's that it's hitting the right the right kind of level of of gameplay and tactical depth and and all of those things and so there's yeah there's a period of time where it was a, a somewhat smaller group that we were working with and then uh i oh i'd have to check the dates but a year and a half maybe before launch we you know we announced the the game and we announced it with a playable build of the game and, and anybody could basically you know they they signed up to our our forums so that they could leave feedback and then they got access to a version of our game and and we've been getting we've been posting things and getting feedback you know this whole time and so you know as we we've, we've really been doing our best to try to work with players and do you find that people are hugely invested in this to the point where you know they they really care about you getting small details right or they get very cross if you get a small detail wrong Oh yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's um, there. There is a there is sometimes the the need to balance balance expectations. We'll say you know there there are certain there are certain aspects again because of the medium and because it is a video game. There are, there are aspects that are inherently inaccurate. You know when it comes to say the factions themselves and the units that we put in the factions so that we decide to put in the factions uh, on one hand we want to try to be as historically accurate or at least as authentic as we can be but at the same time these factions you know the the british and the americans and the Wehrmacht and the africa corps they have to play multiplayer against each other so they have to be balanced in some way and so the idea of balancing a you know a relatively early war africa corps against a somewhat later war u.s or Wehrmacht army means that you kind of have to shift the numbers a little bit in terms of the damage that you certain units can deal and they can take and and you know speeds and stuff because they have to be there has to be some level of parity you know between these between these factions and um so so yeah the, there are there are some numbers we have to fudge sometimes when it comes to these things and and players are players are always willing to point that out to us but it's uh you know it's a it's a part of the it's a part of the conversation and i'm i'm i'll always take a player who who's invested enough to point out you know our inaccuracies over 
a player that looks at it and just goes, eh, okay, whatever, you know, it doesn't care, right? So it's it's always it's always. I mean, I I was that player at one point, right? <laughs> so there are tons and tons of invested players, but but that's a good thing. It certainly is. Let's bring this back to you then now and your role as um, someone who designs missions. Could you tell us a little bit, because what we're going to do actually very shortly is delve into a few of these different missions on a spin on our usual format. I'll explain more about that in a moment. But just for the moment, we'll just give an overview really of how these missions emerge. Do you sit down with a piece of white paper and or, or, or is it maybe a particular bit of source material that, um, that engages you? How does it go? There's kind of there's sort of a couple routes that we can come from. In some cases, it comes from kind of what you said, you know, that this idea of, oh, we know that this is an important battle historically. So we want to try to represent it some way. Uh, and so going and doing that research. And then the other way is is more of a gameplay need. Right. So when you're playing the Italian campaign, it is a map of Italy. You know, we have this grand strategy layer. And so it is a map of Italy that you're looking at. You're moving your armies around to attack certain locations. And then, say, if you attack, you know, Monte Cassino or Ortona, you play, you then go down to that tactical layer and you play Ortona. And so in some cases, we needed to have you know, a certain number of missions spread around as a map so that there was kind of the right density of missions. And then in some cases, for instance, Monte Cassino, you know, we, we really want to make sure we do a mission around Monte Cassino or Ortona or Anzio because these are, these are quite famous battles. And so we want to make sure that we're representing those. So that's kind of how we choose what missions we're doing. But when it comes to actually creating them it starts out with because this is historically based it starts out with a lot of research it starts with uh you know we've got a we've got a little library at relic <laughs> with with a lot of history books in it and we're reading that we're you know looking for things on the internet there's a period of time where a big part of my job was just watching documentaries <laughs> and and you know trying to absorb as much information and and as many different accounts of the battles and different perspectives on the battles as possible and doing things like looking at uh, aerial photography. The allies took a lot of aerial photography and so that we can, you know, see the layouts of, of these cities and these battles and personal accounts wherever we can find them. And so, you know, you're, you're doing all of that research and then, yeah, we, we, first we do a, a, a paper plan. So we do kind of a, a one pager pitch of like, this is what the, this is what the the mission is going to be. These are the things I'm going to focus on. Then we do kind of a larger pitch that has multiple layouts and versions of the layouts and, and stuff. And then we all get together as a group and there's lots of iteration. We usually decide on one of the three layouts or what happens most of the time is we decide on part of layout A and part of layout B and part of layout C and we kind of merge them together. And then, uh, yeah, then we get into the engine and we start building it out as a gray box and scripting it all and, and iterating and iterating and iterating for a very long time until we have that final project. But one of the things that we, we do and one of the reasons why we look at as many kind of different perspectives as we can on these battles is because, and this is maybe what we'll talk about in a minute here, is the need to kind of boil down the history to its essentials because we only have so much time in a mission and so much space in a mission to represent some of these battles. And so it's important that we find out from the history, like what about Monte Cassino or Ortona or Anzio or Tobruk makes 
that battle what it was what makes it recognizable as that battle because we have to really hone in on that because we have a we kind of have a limited space to represent the battle so it has to be something that you look at and go that's Monte Cassino. This is the battle that I'm fighting right now. And and make sure that we understand what the essentials of that history is. That's a really good explanation. Well, let's go and have a look at this in practice then. So usually at this point, I ask people if they um, were to travel back through time, which year they would pick. But today we're going to do something a little bit different, which gives us freedom to really explore a few of these different missions and connect them together with the history that people might know generally. I suppose it'll give us a sense of your process and what they would get if they were to have a go on on, on the game itself. And so I'll ask a different question today, which is I'm going to give you an opportunity to go back to a battle. We've got two more to come after this, but where would you like to go to first? So first we're going to go to the Second Battle of Tobruk, so June 1942, North Africa. I was trying to think of a way to quickly distill what's, I mean, this is, as you said before, a hugely complex um, history because there's all, <laughs> there's all sorts going on. But if we were to try and make it legible very quickly to listeners today, what's happening in Bakhmut at the moment in Ukraine is similar in the sense that you've got this siege of a particular place which has become a symbol of heroic resistance. And that's pretty much what happened with Tobruk um, through 1941 into 1942, isn't it? Until June, at least, when things change, because the British had, had held on. Is that right? So it is from the Axis perspective. So this is the, the second battle of Tobruk, or the fall of Tobruk. So the Africa Corps has pushed their way into Libya and then been pushed back, and now they're pushing forward again. It's part of that seesaw kind of action of that was happening in, in North Africa. And so... The Battle of, I suppose, what's happened immediately, if we're back in that period of time, the uh, Gazala has has occurred and the British are, are sort of falling back at this point. And the siege of Tobruk was, you know, this real high point, I would say, for the for the allies. It was this you you, you said it yourself, you know, this this heroic stand um, of being able to hold on against all odds. And so Tobruk itself is very sort of. It's a kind of politically important to, as a symbol, but the Gazala line is where the Allies kind of thought that they were going to have a jumping off point for their own offensive, and then things got turned around on them. So what's happened here is that there's a, a somewhat rushed fallback to Tobruk at this point, and, and, and uh, many of the, or much of the British Army is actually falling back even further. And so there's a, there's a garrison left at Tobruk to hold it. And there's kind of this back and forth of, okay, how do we hold it? And how much do we hold it? And so even though there's this idea of Tobruk being this besieged city, the defenses around the city aren't quite what they were during the first battle. I heard some accounts that, you know, sappers were going out and desperately trying to repair the uh, defenses, you know, that, that were at one point, the actually Italian defenses that, that the Australians took over during the siege, uh, and trying to repair them because then, you know, like sand, there's this giant anti-tank ditch that was surrounding the city and, and it had, you know, been destroyed in certain places and filled in with sand. And so they're trying to repair it and they're trying to get minefields up and they're trying to build, rebuild those defenses that existed, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't quite enough. The city was quickly surrounded by the Africa Corps, and then almost a day, effectively, you know, the, once the attack began, the, the attack was pretty much over and they were surrounded and the British 
attempted to break out a little bit, but that didn't work. They they didn't quite have the same level of support that they did last time. They weren't prepared for this kind of a siege, and and it ended up being, I mean, one of the biggest captures of or, or surrenders of of British troops. I think since Singapore, I think is actually the biggest one. Um, but this was a it was a it was a massive loss, both in terms of material, in terms of personnel, in terms of the propaganda aspect of it. And it came as a tremendous shock. I know Churchill was said to have gone white when he heard the news and was completely devastated. Is that right? Yeah, he in in particular was it I believe it actually caused a political scandal. I mean, there were calls for Churchill to step down, although admittedly, there's almost always calls for Churchill to step down from someone. <laughs> and on the flip side, we have um, Rommel, whose reputation yeah. is really made at this point as the Desert Fox, and he is seen almost as an immortal military figure at this point, at least. This is probably the high point of the Rommel hype, we could say. And I mean, capturing Tobruk had real logistical implications as well. One of the reasons why the first push of the Africa Corps kind of failed is because they didn't have that supply depot at Tobruk. It was being held and, you know, Tobruk was being used as a supply depot for the Allies' planned attack from Gazala. And so the Africa Corps captured all kinds of food and fuel and things like socks. I remember soldiers being very happy about all the socks they found <laughs> in, in Tobruk. And, and that, that, that alone kind of, kind of helped Rommel's impetus to continue forward onto, onto El Alamein and, and push even further forward from there. You have this hugely loaded historical moment. As you say, it all comes down to this day. I think it's the 20th of June. People will tell me if I've got that wrong. In yeah. uh, 1942, when it all goes wrong, you said something interesting before. I'm going to let you talk about the mission as well in a moment because I'm interested to see how you built a, a mission out of this historical context. But you said about point of view because you're kind of playing from um, the Axis point of view here, which is something maybe this shows my age, but I'm, I'm not even sure you were allowed to do that in the in the 1990s. You were forced into the you know one particular side. But at least it, it kind of, what it, one thing that I was thinking about is it it's really interesting that we're looking at war from different points of view now and even with films like um, All Quiet on the Western Front we're being mm -hmm. challenged to our quite orthodox views of being on this side or that side and it seems to be something you're doing as well. Yeah we wanted to be able to show both perspectives there's a real there's a real interest for it I mean that going back to you know talking to our players and seeing what they want to see um, the Africa Corps is a faction so the Africa Corps is a new faction for this version of the game for Company of Heroes 3 and that that's something that players had been asking for for a long time and and so because we're adding this new faction and we wanted to feature them in a in a campaign and, and make them playable and, and kind of tell the story from from that moment because you know as we just discussed with Tobruk there are some truly amazing huge battles from from that perspective so yeah being being able to to use the Africa Corps and and sort of that that technology and the way that we framed that faction was a was a really interesting perspective to take. So tell me about how this how this mission, which is related to this particular battle, plays out. So when I was researching this mission, the one thing that I really kind of locked into again, we talk about the the essentials of it and certainly the emotion of it and sort of the action. What sort of actions can the player take uh, while they're playing the game? Because the game itself is all about player action. And so something that came that I focused on was the speed of it. 
you know, it happened so quickly. They got surrounded and then the lines were just broken through. And so the when you look at the layout of the map, uh, we put in that big tank ditch, uh, but there are holes in it because it hasn't been repaired properly. And there are tons of British defenses, but if you break through at certain points, they'll actually fall back to the next point, right? So it's all about pushing that line back. You're fighting against an entrenched you know, British force, but you're trying to, you're trying to strike them at certain positions to force them to fall back. Um, and so when you look at the, when you look at the layout, you, you start at sort of a, a represent, it's not actually LDM, but it's kind of a, a representation of LDM where you, you get a bunch of fuel resources and you have a, you get a base built up sort of for you. So you're almost immediately ready to go. You can build your tanks, you can build your infantry up, and you're ready to just go in almost as this highly mobile vehicle-based shock army and and push through those defenses. Actually, you can still see them on Google Earth if you look at them. You can actually zoom in and, and you can see the jagged trench line that still surrounds Tobruk in, in North Africa today and a lot of the British, um, they're sort of pill-shaped defensive slit trenches and stuff. It's It's... So that, you know, a lot of that is what this layout is based on, is, is based on the actual layout or an approximation of, you know, in our, in our mission space of that. And so as you're going through the mission, you're, you're hitting the British and you're forcing them to fall back at certain points. And they're attacking back at you with armor as much as they can. There were armored counterattacks, um, but they were, they were scattered and kind of ineffective because of how quickly this was all coming on. Uh, and of course, the Italians were, were fighting on different points of the line, you know, causing distractions and stuff while the, you know, the spearhead of the Africa Corps went in. Um, there's, as you look at the layout of this map, there's kind of large open spaces for tanks to fight that get kind of pushed through these choke points of breaches in the trench or uh, in that tank ditch or like the certain trench networks of the British that you're fighting kind of toward and then trying to get around and behind as well. And then once you've done that, they fall back into the city itself and you actually surround the city and there are attempts by the British. It becomes almost a defensive mission at that point for you because you're now defending a line and trying to prevent the British from breaking out. And so there are armored counterattacks against you while you're sort of holding this line. The objective at that point is that you fail the mission if, if too many British uh, units are actually able to escape because they're, they'll reform and, and attack you again. And so that, that's kind of the overview of the mission. But we try to, again, we try, the focus was to try and, and yeah, focus on that, on that speed and attacking those defenses and then, and then surrounding and preventing a British breakout, you know, and as sort of the, the essentials of what you look, what you think about when you think about that battle and kind of forming that into two or three objectives that the player can complete on the map as a representation. The map sounds pretty vast, actually. I mean, it must have taken a hell of a lot of development, which I'm sure you could tell me about at length. But from the player's point of view, if you would sit down, make yourself comfortable in a chair and fancy heading back to 1942 to have a go um, to Brook, what, what kind of length of time are we talking about? Is this, are you going to be in that chair for a week, a day? What, what kind of length of time might a mission like this take? So our aim for mission uh, was always 45 minutes to an hour. For some missions like this, they certainly take longer. I would say the average is probably a bit over an hour for a game like, yeah. or for a, for a mission like this. And that's sort of one of the, one of the places that the abstraction of the history starts to come from is 
you know, and probably Tobruk is one of, because of how quickly this battle happened, it's probably one of the missions we have that does sort of more, more closely directly relate to the history just because of how quickly that battle happened. But a couple of the battles we're going to talk about here are more of an abstraction because, you know, they still also have to be 45 minutes to an hour. And, you know, there are battles in World War II that lasted weeks or, or even months. And so having to boil that down, you have to make some hard choices about what you, exactly you're going to represent in the mission. Brilliant. I'm really hoping we can get some visuals actually from you to put on our website so people can have a look at um, just how much detail goes into this. Um, and it strikes sure. me that that's a lot of the pleasure of, of the playing comes from the fine details and then mm. the idea of immersion on top of that must be must be something. But we're going to go from these vast desert searing light and blue skies. Next two battles are going to take place in quite a different geographical terrain because, of course, in September of uh, 1943, the British and the Americans make this hop. It's a bit more than a hop, but they, they go to Italy anyway. They, they, uh, it's the Allied invasion of Italy. And so th the next two battles that we're going to talk about take place as part of that Italian campaign that runs through. So we've gone from 1942, and very neatly for us, you're going to give us one in 1943 and one in 1944 to finish with. So let's let's go to the 1943 battle and see how you've um, interacted with that one as well which one have you picked please so it was december 1943 and the battle of ortona so the canadian forces going up the eastern coast of italy and capturing ortona yeah i, I suppose um we should emphasize uh, based on your background that this is a, a bit of a canadian story was it a good one for you to did you get into it have a sense of patrick pride or something i certainly did and i'll explain exactly how in a minute here but um yeah it, it was definitely uh, you know certainly when it comes to you know, the history of it we are a canadian studio you know i'm canadian myself and so it's yeah certainly there there was an aspect of really wanting to make sure that we were able to represent the canadians and and get them in there and because uh, Ortona is uh, is kind of this distinctly Canadian battle. It, it's referred to as Little Stalingrad by some people, uh, you know, just for the, the ferocity of the house-to-house -house fighting. And we wanted to make sure that we were representing that so just and to, representing Canadians. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but to, to sketch the history then, the landings were were opposed, but, you know, they kind of, um, the Allies certainly did make um, substantial gains, but everything came to a bit of a stalemate after a short while because of the terrain. I want to talk to you about the terrain a little bit later on, so we'll leave that for the moment. But if you want to imagine what's going on with this particular battle, it's on the Adriatic coast, isn't it, rather than um, the Mediterranean coast? Is that the correct way to put it? And yeah. Um, yeah. And it is, it's very ferocious street to street, um, lots of snipers, lots of ruined buildings. If you could imagine, I suppose, a completely ruined um, community, this is what it was, isn't it? Yeah, it was destroyed. <laughs> almost almost front to back, a, a, a ruin, a city of ruins and, and done with purpose. It was a city that the Germans really intended to hold or at least use to significantly slow down the allied advance and so they dug in they were destroying buildings just to block roads and create their own sort of defenses out of the ruins and the rubble and it took it took a lot of very vicious 
I say street to street, but house to house in a lot of cases. There is a there is a tactic um, employed there called mouse holing, where you would go into one instead of trying to cross the street or go down the street, you would go into one building, go to the top floor of it, blast a hole through the wall into the next building, and go in through the top of the next building and back down again. And they would they would do this sort of zigzag up and down through the buildings to clear out all of the all of the garrisoned units it it was that kind of fighting i even i even read one one report of them taking mortar tubes and effectively firing them at very very low angles kind of from one building into another building rather than the typical you know artillery arc that you would see a mortar use i mean it's it's all kinds of um just very sort of vicious in close fighting but but eventually they prevailed it was it, you know they they managed to push their way through and and the germans eventually had to had to retreat and fall back from there to another defensive line hello it's peter here as you can tell from my conversation with david milne i thoroughly enjoyed this opportunity to find out more about company of heroes 3 it was released just a month ago at the end of february to a blaze of five star reviews gaming trends called a masterpiece the reviewer for the enemy described it as a fiercely intelligent real-time strategy game that drowns players in interesting choices and it could just be one of my favorite rts games ever now, as I said earlier, for you real history lovers, Company of Heroes 3 has been issued along with an accompanying website called The Briefing Room. Here, you can learn about all sorts of things like the reality of desert warfare, the tactics that the different forces employed and the weapons that they used. It includes biographies of key figures and gives you access to an enthralling range of immersive and interactive maps. You can hear from experts like Professor Simon Ball on Alamein or Matthew Parker on Monte Cassino, and even from one of our old time travellers, Robert Lyman, who gives an elegant overview of the Battle of Tobruk. To find out much more about this, just go to history.companyofheroes.com. So it's a good opportunity for me to ask you about weaponry because I know that this, well, it, it has many points of difference, doesn't it, with Tobruk? Because in Tobruk it's this lightning fast assault, the city falls, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a shocking moment. Whereas this is more prolonged, the fighting is, um, is at very close quarters, probably involves slightly different weapons as well and techniques as you alluded to there. Do you want to talk about any of the particular weapons that, that feature in this mission? Absolutely. So when the player plays any of these missions, they in the Italian campaign, they actually have a choice of what nationality and what faction they use. So they could be they could be American or British. And then within American and British, there's the American Armored Company, the American Airborne, like the paratroopers, and the American, you know, first special forces, uh, you know, the SSF commandos. Um, and then as the British, you have armor support and you have the Indian artillery company as well. And so that's actually a part of a part of sort of the almost ahistorical nature as well is we set up the game as close to the history as we can. But at the same time, the player has agency and they have choice and they have options. And so as much as we try to represent that history, there's also an element of a of a sort of what if question right what if i was here what if i had if i was the commander of this theater and where where do i put my units and where do i allocate them on that note though one of the things that we when you come into ortona 
um, the weaponry and the abilities and stuff that you have access to kind of depends on who you bring in. So if there is, you know, a, a machine gun team in a, in a building watching over a, an intersection, as they would, it's up to you to solve that problem. So the you can use mortars to hit it from a long way away. You can call in an airstrike. You could throw smoke grenades and, and have your infantry approach much more closely. That sort of a thing. We, we set up the problems for the player to solve to be kind of based in that history. But then it's up to the player to decide whether they're going to follow that history and, and kind of play it out as a reenactment or if they're going to see what would work better or different or, you know, what would I do in this situation? And, and, and that, I think, is a part of... we go back to what we talked about before part of that fun of the game and what draws people in is that that idea of how do i do things differently there are a couple of units though that we feature specifically in ortona <laughs> their use is is particular for this kind of combat one is a is a churchill crocodile so a churchill flame tank so you have this big heavy slow moving infantry tank that's able to kind of crawl through the these narrow streets and and burnt out buildings and and try to get people try to push the germans off of you know intersections or out of houses and stuff and if you play as the americans you get a sherman bulldozer tank so it's got a howitzer cannon on it and it's got a big bulldozer there's a lot of walls that you can just you can just break through a wall and create a new path for yourself and and take down a building to to be able to go through it and and destruction becomes one of the mechanics that you're playing with in that in that mission because you need to find new routes through the city as it's as it's you know the germans have concentrated you know their forces on these choke points on these narrow streets the city itself when you look at the map it's ruins it's narrow narrow streets it's very claustrophobic it's certainly when you compare it to a map like tobruk you know units you can be walking down a street and units are firing at you from above you know on on higher you know floors of a building and and there's little tiny infantry flanking routes and so you know the main the tanks kind of need to stay on these main roads but you need to make sure you have infantry surrounding them to support them because they could quickly get stuck or surrounded um and so that's an aspect of it the other unit that we featured uh, was a squad of Canadian infantry. We, uh, that, that was something I, I really wanted to make sure we got in the game. We actually created a, a new infantry squad for this mission. They're Canadian shock troopers, so they're a heavy infantry squad equipped with Thompson submachine guns uh, and demolition charges. And the reason we do that is to kind of pay homage to that idea of mouse holing. Now, we don't have the mechanics to actually allow the player to go into uh, one building and blow a hole into the next building and go down. That was, that's just uh, mechanics-wise something that we wouldn't be able to do. But they can still breach into buildings and use their demolition charges to destroy buildings and obstacles and that sort of thing. So we're still kind of paying homage to that idea of them being these close-in shock troops slash demolition experts <laughs> as, they, as they go through this mission. I, I'm just sitting here with a bit of a... Um a look of wonder on my face because it all sounds incredibly compelling and it i, I suppose I'm, you've in a way answered this question already which is <laughs> one that i wanted to put to you which is what peculiar little nuggets of knowledge did you come away with which would stay with you i suppose it must be this idea of mouse holing and moving free buildings and i'm not sure what use this will be to you in in day-to-day -day life maybe one day who knows but um <laughs> is there anything else that you want to talk about from from this developmental work that you've done here that 
that you'd like to share with our listeners? Certainly uh, in the way the Canadians were used in the mission. So I, I said, you know, we, we sort of we sort of focused on the Canadians quite a bit here, mo- mostly for the just the, the love of who we are, I suppose, uh, and the pride, the national pride, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. But on, on that Italian campaign map, there's actually a, a quest to to help out the Canadians and you help them out in a city nearby Ortona. And if you do that, then in the Ortona mission, they will you will actually gain access to these Canadian units that it's like you've gained their support and then you can call them in. So there are decisions on the campaign map that will actually affect the missions themselves and how they play. And as well as that, the Canadians are actually there as a computer, like an AI controlled allied faction as well. So regardless of whether you um, have access to them, to the Canadian shock troopers yourself, they're always there in the mission and they're kind of fighting this battle on the flanks. And so I said, you know, you can be a historical in terms of you could bring an American company in to fight at Ortona. But I really wanted to make sure the Canadians were always there. You know, it is still a Canadian battle and you're there to to support their advance and they're there to support your advance. It's a, it becomes a joint thing because the Canadians are always going to be there fighting. And so even though there is an element of there is an ahistorical nature to that, that's not really how the battle went. We're trying to we're trying to keep that connection to the history by saying, no, this is a Canadian battle. The Canadians are here. They're fighting with you and and you can do that. And, you know, you at one point that some squads are there's an objective. Some squads get pinned down and you go and you take out these HMG teams. They're like, thanks, we'll we'll, you know, try to flank around the, the outside. And then later in the mission, a whole bunch of enemies come in, but then they kind of come through too, and they're helping you out. And so it becomes this really sort of, we, we try to really feature them and, and, and you're the player. And of course you're the one with agency and with the driving force, but you know, the, the Canadian troops get to kind of be the heroes in, in that mission as well, uh, even though they're AI controlled. So we've had one Canadian victory, one British defeat. So let's see what's going to happen next. So we've got one more of these, uh, the, the, the third and our final battle to have a look at. It's another absolutely fascinating historical context. So tell us what the battle is and tell us how this situation came about, please. What I'm talking about next is the Battle of Anzio, which is interesting to call it a battle of Anzio because really it was from January to June, I believe, is how long the 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 beachhead lasted, and it was actually sort of a, it was just a now a new front line has been opened effectively. But what happened was is the Allies were you kind of mentioned before the Allies were getting bogged down. Italy is this long skinny nation. They thought, well, if we could just land troops behind the line, we could maybe force the Germans to to back up again, rather than having to break through this. And so there's a bit of a rush happening here because the invasion of Normandy is coming. And so many, many troops and certainly the equipment to land troops amphibiously is being earmarked for that invasion. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, a time frame. There has, it has to be done very quickly. And so they plan this invasion. It's, they're going to land at Anzio and they do. They they land up the coast. It's relatively unopposed um, because the Germans didn't quite expect that. Uh, but then there was, so the story goes, some hesitation. Lucas, I believe, was the, command, the general in charge. And uh, he hesitated and he built up a pretty huge number of troops at the bridgehead, but didn't press his advantage. He didn't move out. And so the Germans had time to counterattack. And what began was effectively this almost siege 
where the troops that are the the Americans uh, who are there and, and British as well are basically just have to hold this beachhead. They're being hit by artillery and their Germans are bringing in railway guns and there are pretty significant tank battles as well on on some of the edges and uh you know there's there's this it becomes yet another just static line of attrition that is formed in in Italy. That is sort of where this mission comes from. Eventually they they break out and they plan a new operation which is attacked simultaneously from the line at Monte Cassino and the line at Anzio and they break through and and come together. You've done some great distillation. I mean it it is really interesting though I think the Anzio enclave that it becomes separated from the rest of the allied forces and um one thing actually i might add to our website because it's such a fun little um educational video i don't know if you've seen this but there was a 1960 documentary about the anzio um thing and it's just called the um the beachhead or something like this and and oh, it describes a strange little i suppose society adrift like a island in the ocean or something like that trying to remain entire until it's until it's rescued just the way that this developed as you as you said exactly that the, the landings are relatively unopposed but then it becomes very attritional and very very bloody thereafter and you get this sense of people digging holes and it becomes quite fantastic mr foxish where people are living underground and like kind of boring little holes up and things and i thought well if you're going to sit a, sit down and want to put that into a game, then this is a wonderful, wonderful context for you. Uh, that's actually what I was going to bring up in a moment is, you know, all these images you see of tents, you know, kind of the standard, you know, army tent that they would have, but it's half underground. So you just have the little, the little top of the tent up because they've built dirt up so high over the sides to help guard against, you know, shrapnel and, and, and the side effects of, of artillery. Um, that yeah, they're they're like there's nowhere to go. You couldn't back up. Their Mediterranean was behind you, and so they just had to go down. If you look, our our environment artists who are so talented, I just can't talk enough about how talented they are. If you look at the map of Anzio on the beachhead that you that you initially need to defend, if you look around, there's there are little entrances to underground areas, and and there's lots of there are ruins, but there's also, you know, things built up around, you know, your defensive buildings. And there's even little details like entrances to an underground area. You'll just see, you know, a table and chairs and cards on it and a little string of laundry because they're living here. It's, you know, it's those details that it's, this isn't, they didn't just show up and start fighting. They had to, they had to live. They had to do their laundry. They had to, they wanted to play cards sometimes. There was, you know, they needed off time, even though they are, almost constantly within range of enemy artillery. There is nowhere for them to go. And so you just see s some of those aspects of, even in a horrific event like this, troops just kind of getting on with it. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, just, okay, well, this Putting is the, the situation washing we're in now. Yeah, yeah, well, I got, you know, <laughs> yes, the artillery's hitting, but I have dirty socks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I just got to do the, you know, what are you going to do? You got to do, mm. you got to do your laundry. So some of the, some of the detail, the, those little details, if you look for them, you'll, you'll find them in a lot of these, these maps and, and missions as well. We try to, you know, a lot of those details come from the environment artists and they try to really tr make the environments feel lived in and real. And th these are, 
these are places. So it's the, it's the domestic in. details as well as the military ones, mm-hmm. isn't it? And so, as yeah. you might, we talked before about the obvious question of of weaponry. Um, but yeah, I think there is something nice about seeing the little foxholes and 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 signs of you know just food and sleeping and all these little ever present aspects of life that we all have. And we've we've now got, I suppose as far away from the the one day in Tobruk as we possibly can, because this is a six-month, yeah. you know, process. What's, what kind of a mission would you put into that? If you approach that, what, what, what do you think about? Yeah, we really had to, I really had to think about what exactly we wanted to represent here and, and how to represent that. Because there, like I said, it's, it's really kind of a series of battles. There's different, re- really different stages to the Battle of Anzio. And so this is probably the mission where, maybe the most abstraction is happening. So in the mission itself, what happens is you go on the beaches and the impression is, is that this battle has already been going on for a little while. Like I say, you go on the beach and they're already, you know, you see people are already dug in. There's allies on the beach already fighting. Some of the buildings at Anzio have been destroyed and ruined. Um, so you're kind of the next push, let's say, as you as you come in. So the very first thing you do is defend the beach. Artillery is coming in, the Germans are attacking, it's a defensive beat and you just have to hold the line. And so I'm trying to take that that siege aspect of the Battle of Anzio and make that a focus of it right away, of you are being hit by artillery, there's an enemy infantry incoming, and you just have to hold that line. And you just have to hold it until a break comes, you know, and, and you can maybe push out. And then once, you, once you've held off, you have this opportunity to, to try and push out. Again, and the, the Germans will keep attacking you. But also, one of one of the unique units uh, I got for this mission was a railway gun. Um, so one of the German K5, you know, big railway guns. So the it's referred to in the mission as Anzio Annie, even though the Germans wouldn't have referred to it as that. Uh, it, but it is from the Allied perspective, so we're referring to it from the from the Allied point of view. And what's happening in the mission is. As you're pushing out and as you're driving forward, there's, you know, there are hills and there are kind of river valleys and stuff that you're pushing out on. And the Germans are dug into the side of the hills, you know, kind of reverse slope like they like they would um, and hiding, you know, uh, counterattacking vehicles and stuff in in, you know, high, you know, treed or or well hedged areas and stuff to try to, like, catch you off guard. The railway gun is firing at your base the whole time this is happening. And so there's effectively a timer. On your mission, you have to get to that railway gun and break through this German defensive line before that railway gun destroys your base. And so it's there's there's this anxiety and this a little bit of pressure now that is put on the player of like you have to move fast, you have to push out, you have to get through this line because there is it's it's just on on a timer. It's just hitting you now, hitting you, hitting you, and so trying to capture that emotion of the con- the constant and consistent ar- artillery fire that they had to you know endure while at Anzio is is a part of this mission and is being represented as effectively a a timer that you have to outrun as you push up the map which is itself actually also a very big <laughs> very big map there was no way to not make this a a pretty big mission you you get to uh you you get to kind of a, a town 
another town beyond. So there's Anzio and then there's a lot of, you know, de German defenses and hills and stuff. And then another town where the railway gun is and, and you clear the Germans out of that. And it's kind of final defensive line. And once you break through that, the, the mission is is successful. But there's there's a couple other aspects that I, I added to it as well. One is once you get up the coast a little bit and you push forward, um, there's actually an a another allied landing happening. Uh, which happened. The, the Americans uh, landed at Anzio and Natuno, and the British actually landed up the coast a little bit. In this mission, if you land as the Americans, it's the British up the coast a little bit, and they are trapped on the beaches, but you're coming from behind. And so if you get there fast enough, you can destroy the machine guns and the anti-tank guns that are holding them on the beach, and then they'll actually help you push through the line as well. And then if you come into that mission as the British, it's the Americans up the coast. And so because this was a joint operation, I wanted to make sure that both, you know, allied powers were kind of represented in this mission as well, kind of helping you fight. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's little details that we try to add and try to represent, but... It ends up being a very intense mission. You alluded to this earlier on and just want, wanted to pick up on it. And it's this idea of you depict the local. You're maybe hovering above the action at 50 feet or whatever it might be. But there's also a way of, of looking from further up, if you like, over maybe Italy as a whole and seeing something that was so central to that Italian campaign, which is the really difficult nature of the terrain. I know veteran, I remember one veteran once said there was only two ways that you could go uphill and downhill or the only thing that would you know what did they say there's a there's a lovely quote which i've got what you need to fight an army over this ground is an army of bulletproof kangaroos which is just this kind of idea of it being so difficult to manage and can you get that as well within the gameplay absolutely yeah um there's all sorts of different terrain that we represent so Ortona's up on a hill and it's this extremely dense urban environment. Um, Anzio itself is actually kind of kind of on a, a, a more open area of, of Italy. Uh, but then we have other missions as well. I, I think probably the more famous one would be Monte Cassino. And you, what you're doing in that mission is you are fighting up a mountain. Mm. There's a mechanical representation of having the height advantage. So we have cover in our game. You know, if your unit's or behind rubble or behind sandbags, they'll actually take less damage and be harder to hit. But if a unit is above you, it negates that cover advantage. And so as you're fighting up the hill, you're fighting up at a disadvantage. And, you know, the, the heavy, heavy entrenched, heavily entrenched Germans as you're, as you're moving up this hill is represented. And, and there are other, other maps as well. Um, uh, one of the missions I did was Potenza. Um, which was itself, you know, you, they kind of came out, it was actually Canadians as well in this case, they came, you come out of this river valley uh, and, and then you have to cross a river and, and the whole city itself is, is on a hill and it's almost this kind of bean shape, con, concave shape. And so there were, there were guns and machine guns and stuff almost sort of facing out like a, like a amphitheater. And having to go up in these very narrow crisscrossing, so it's both a hill and it's urban environment because you have switchback roads with with buildings and stuff lining them that enemies are garrisoned inside, and you know the kind of narrow, close fighting where a single machine gun squad or a single anti tank gun can can hold up your your whole army if you if you kind of make the wrong move. And so, you well, know, there's listen. there's a lot of this very 
this it, very fighting against these entrenched enemies yeah on on hills on mountains and cities and all over the place it's um Oh, goodness. I could talk to you about this all day. Unfortunately, our time has run a little bit um, short, but I do have one last question I want to put to you before I let you go. Hopefully a fun one. All these things are strewn out over the map. And if I gave you the opportunity to reach your hand out metaphorically and pick up a tangible memento of this conversation today from one of the three battles, is there anything you'd like as a bit of a talisman? I really liked this question. I think it's a really interesting one. It's been on my mind actually a lot for the last few days because it's 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 hard. It's it's a hard one to pick. So I, if you'll humor me, I've got I'll I'll talk you through my mental process here of like how I got to it. But yeah, because there's so much you could bring back. We've talked about. I mean, we're covering all together. I mean, years of conflict, and and so you know, my initial thought was kind of the, the things that you typically bring back from a battlefield or that soldiers, you know, a, a, a pistol or a rank insignia or a flag or something like that. But, you know, I didn't fight there. So that seems weirdly like looting rather than a trophy kind of thing. And, and then I, 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 I was thinking about that more and, and I wanted it to be a bit more maybe sentimental. And, and I thought about like, what about a piece of like a piece of rubble from Ortona or some of the sand from the beach of Anzio. And, and, but that, I, I don't, I don't know that did, that didn't quite hit for me, but I, what I was th started thinking about, because I was looking at all, I was kind of, because of this podcast, I was looking back at some of the documentation that I had done about these. And I was looking at all these maps and we have maps now in hindsight where you see there's a map of Italy and here's the line and we know exactly who's on one side of the line and exactly who's on the other side of the line. That's not how it was, right? They're, they were working with com incomplete information. And so the, the, the idea of getting your hands on a map or something that was like just a captain's map of a local area that he'd scribbled on to say, okay, well, there's something here and we know there's a gun here and there's probably this, you know, having that snapshot of like the incomplete information that they actually had and having to like make very serious decisions based on, they have intelligence, of course, but you know, it's intelligence. It's not confirmed all the time and surprises happen. But, and just thinking about that, that experience and that that close to the ground that personal experience got me thinking about my great uncle david milnes he is he's my namesake he was a lieutenant of a machine gun section in world war one and he wrote a war journal a diary and i i have that it's one of the few items in my possession that i would have probably classify as treasured i make a, a yearly sort of tradition out of reading it on remembrance day that's sort of my thing that i do to remember him and reading it is it's funny kind of how mundane it is most of the time actually you know reading it doesn't turn it doesn't turn your understanding of world war one history on its head or reveal anything new it's it's just you know his his recollections and remembering but it, it it's such a personal connection i think and and such a really wonderful way to remember him and so the thing that i think i would want to bring back and maybe i'm cheating a little bit when i say this is if you transported me back in a time machine i would just try to pick up every every lost journal that you know is lost to time and and that we've lost every every accounting that a soldier has made and every little bit of of life that they decided to to write down and and record for posterity that that hasn't made it to us now you know i i really love reading those things and and 
And reading them isn't, like I say, it's probably not going to change our understanding of World War II or there's not going to be some major reveal and probably things you read and, you know, like things I read in my uncle's war journal are probably things that were written in so many other <laughs> war journals as well, the day-to-day -day life of soldiering. But it's still such a personal connection and there's going to be those little bits of personal connection there. And so I just, I would want to go back and, and, and bring some of those people, I guess, back with me as, as many as I could find and as many as I could grab. That's what, that's what I would want. Wonderful, wonderful answer. And I think what's really clear to me talking to you today is the, the passion with which you've done this work, the care with which you've approached it. And there's a real kind of sense of the importance of history, but also the playfulness, I think, that we always try and encourage when we're talking to people in the podcast as well, which is something that doesn't just take you back to the, the history, but also brings it back to us today. And I think um, I'll swap you all of those memoirs for a... Um, a copy of Companies Heroes 3 and our listeners will probably <laughs> never hear from me ever again because I'll vanish into some <laughs> some lost space. But listen, I've enjoyed this tremendously. I've learned a lot and um, I hope you have enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much for coming on Travel Through Time, David Milne. Thank you for having me. I, I have. This has been a really, really wonderful experience. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to David Milne, who works for Relic in Vancouver. We were talking all about Company of Heroes 3, which has been very enthusiastically received indeed. You can see all sorts of visuals and videos, as well as snippets about the original history on our website at tttpodcast.com. That's it from me today. More next week. All right, let's move out. Goodbye. <laughs>